Well, I'm turning this morning to Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter number 11, and we'll be looking this morning primarily at verses 1 through 4. Uh, Last week, we gave a lengthy introduction to this particular study. Uh, It's a little bit out of the norm for us. We normally go through an entire book of the Bible consecutively. Of course, we have been through the book of Romans uh, in its entirety. Although I was telling someone last week that I think the very last sermon out of Romans 16, uh, I was tempted to start over. I was tempted to go right back to Romans 1 and do it again because there is so much wealth. There is so much spiritual depth and wisdom to be found in this book as as is with all of God's Word. But Romans is one of those books that I do not think we can possibly uh, we cannot possibly expound and pull every single thought out. And this study was really born out of my own personal readings and my own personal studies. And it was interesting because my own personal studies started uh, recently in Romans 8. And as I continued to read through Romans 8, got into Romans 9, uh, Romans 10, considering the great truths there, and it was almost as if God had, through me reading His Word, brought me back to Romans 11 again and said, all right, there's some truths I think it is very important for us to deal with. Uh, Not by coincidence, it goes a lot along with our study on Wednesday nights of the book of Revelation. As we are building and journeying through Revelation and we're watching uh, these wonderful works of God and we've finished the seven letters to the seven churches and and then this last Wednesday we introduced Revelation 4 with uh, a vision of the throne of God and uh, thinking about how things are going to all end, uh, the end times if you will, those terms that begin to, uh, they, they interest us, they, they draw great attention. And in the introduction last week of Romans 11, I mentioned to you that Romans 11 is not often referred to as a key that unlocks prophetic history, but it is indeed a great key because it gives a, a quick, if you will, overview of God's purpose for the Jews and God's purpose for Israel. And I gave you the point last week that there are some that take the position that God is completely done with Israel, that Israel, because of their rejection of God, they are no longer in prophecy, and they teach what is called replacement theology, which basically says that the church in every way, shape, or form has replaced Israel in its entirety so that there is no more Israel. And I don't believe this replacement theology. I believe God has a plan both for Israel and also for the Gentiles that will one day end in the beauty of this one church and that they will all be brought together. But Paul was dealing with this very issue in Romans 11. And much, many times when Paul begins a letter, he begins by dealing with what he perceives or knows is going to be an objection. Uh, Often Paul's writings are in a response to an anticipated rejection or an objection to something that's happening. And so last week when we looked at this, one of the key thoughts that I gave us to consider was that in those verses, there are chapters in Romans 8, 9, and 10, Paul has been speaking in great detail, not only about God's purposes for the nation of Israel, but God's purpose in the calling of the Gentiles. And there is an accusation that Paul states 
that the Jews are, of course, guilty of rejecting and slighting the gospel. There's absolutely no question about that. And then as a result of their slighting of the gospel, they, they are blinded. Their eyes have been blinded to these great truths. But Paul wants us to know, and we'll see this in the today and in the coming days, that this rejection of Israel was not a universal rejection or a final or total rejection. Although in Paul's day, it would have seemed as if God has rejected the nation of Israel. Paul, again, anticipating an objection, says, and asks the question that really is our subject today, hath God cast away his people? Now, in its context, this is a direct reference to Israel. Now, we know that according to the doctrine of election, not only is Israel part of the elect, but there are those, of course, of the Gentiles who are also part of the elect. But Paul is primarily dealing with the reality, has God fully rejected Israel? Now, he uses a number of different Old Testament passages to point to the purpose of casting them away or appearing to cast them away for a time. But then there was the warning that he gives to the Gentiles. Do not glory or rejoice in the blinding of Israel, but rather use this as a means to humble you and to be cautious regarding your own spiritual condition. Now, I think it's safe to say we should never rejoice in someone's lost condition or the fact that they are out of the body of Christ. So the Apostle Paul is really dealing with two aspects of this. He's rebuking the reviling of the Jews by the Gentiles, and he's showing that the present blinding of the Jews is a part of God's wisdom. And so the Gentiles were not to despise the Jews, but rather remember that you, just like everyone else, are saved by God's free, sovereign grace. You are the elect of God, but do not use that as a means of ridiculing the Jews which have been blinded. Uh, Paul says that the very reason for their blindness was so that you would see. Now again, we don't understand everything about the end times. We don't fully comprehend it all. There are deep mysteries. Eschatology, as I mentioned to you, is a deep well. And of course, there have been a lot of things that have confused or muddied the waters of end times. But the reality is, is that the study of eschatology or the study of end times, we realize there are many different quote-unquote camps. But I do believe that Romans 11 is directly connected to how we understand eschatology or the end times. It's how we view and what God is doing. If our end times has nothing to do with Israel, then our end time theology may be flawed. Because God is still dealing with the Jews, and so Paul is still dealing with them. Much of the dispute that's happening in eschatology, which camp you quote-unquote say you belong to, really hinges or pivots on what you think about Israel. That is how key this is. So Paul begins this dissertation by asking a rhetorical question. 
Notice what he says in verse 1. I say then, now that, that is the words of a man who's expecting, a, he's expecting objection. He's just gone through Romans 8, 9, and 10. Now that's for our mind. When he wrote the letter, there was not Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans 10. It was all one long letter. So this would be like a new paragraph, and Paul says, I say then, as a result of what I've said in Romans 8, 9, and 10, and every other word I've spoken since then, he says, I say then, here's a question. Has God cast away his people? Now we know it's a rhetorical question because he gives the answer. He says, God forbid. The strongest denouncing he could give. God forbid that he has cast away his people. So this first heading dealing with the first part of verse 1 is Paul begins, as he often does, with rhetorical questions. Now, remember that in Old Testament times, Israel, and if you know your Old Testament history, you know that Israel was called out of paganism, and I want you to remember that word, paganism, and were set apart as what's referred to as a theocracy. A theocratic nation, if you will, with Almighty God as its head and as its king. Israel, of course, was called out, set apart, given a king, and was given a mandate, they were given covenants, and they were given a future. The history of Israel, if you study just all the way back to Abraham, okay, what God has done with the, with the Israel, what God has done with the Gentiles, if you just trace that back to Abraham, you will see that is a grand testimony of God's providential, not only care, but government over human history especially when it comes to the subject of redemptive history so you can use abraham not as the start of everything but really the start of where we see these promises and these future this really start to come into focus now if we quickly if we think about the history of israel we think about the old testament think about where they've gone Think about into the New Testament, we're told about the Romans conquering Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Talk, thinking about the Jews being dispersed out of their homeland. And despite all of these years, the Jews still have an identity. Whether they're in Israel or whether they're in some other part of the world, they still have an identity. They still are, they are aware of their identity. They're aware that they are Jews. They're aware that even those who have rejected the Messiah, they realize that we know a covenant God. We are aware of this God. So when we think about this question then, what Paul is doing with all of Israel, and that's, that is a, probably a very poor overview of, of Israel from a human perspective, but Paul reaches the end of these discussions and he concludes really with what he started in chapter 9. And here's what he said in Romans 9 verse 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. In other words, these things are not so as if these things are not going to happen or these promises. Because if you turn quickly back there to Romans 9, you'll notice what Paul said. He said, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Please note the, the, the compassion and the empathy and the burden that Paul has. For I could wish that myself 
were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. His brethren were the Jews. And do you realize what Paul is saying? Now, he's stating something that's not possible. But he is saying, if it were possible for my brethren and my kinsmen to be saved, I would have myself condemned for all of eternity so that that could take place. Would you be willing to give up your eternity so that your kinsmen and your brethren could spend eternity with Christ? Probably not. So Paul has a deep burden, but it's not just a random burden. Notice what he again writes. Who are Israelites? He clearly says who the brethren and the kinsmen are. Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption? Don't lose sight of that. The adoption. We are, if you're in Christ today, you are adopted into the family of God. And he says these Jews, these Israelites are also part of the adoption. And the glory and the covenants. Don't forget the covenants. And the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came. Who is over all God blessed forever. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Remember that, what Paul just said there. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Now, of course, Romans 9 is the high water mark that really divides those who believe in free will and God's electing grace. It's the, it is the one that if you want to start a firestorm, just preach on Romans 9. That's what will really light the fires of people because that's where the, the theological debates start. But what I want you to focus on is what Paul was stating specifically about the Jews. He's making remarks that remind them of God's purposes and plans for the nation of Israel. All the way back in chapter 3, we won't turn there, Paul had asked another question. Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? In other words, does the unbelief of the Jews make God's word or his faith without effect? Of course it doesn't. Another rhetorical question. Paul is not asking these questions because they are the answer. Oh yes, without effect. Same thing. Now go back to the rhetorical question of Romans 11 verse 1. Hath God cast away his people? Based upon what we learned in Romans 3 and now Romans 9 and what we'd see in other passages, Paul says, God forbid. Not even possible. It's not possible that God has cast away all of his people. Okay, now Paul's going to give very, very relevant examples. So Paul is treating this subject with such great, not only compassion, but he's diligent because what he's doing is he is destroying the boasting of the Jews. Because here's the problem. The Jews thought we're the children of God simply because we're Jews. We are simply the elect because 
Abraham is our father. Yet Paul just unwound all of that in what we just read when he said, are they all Israel? No, they're not. So being just from Abraham, being an ethnic Jew, does not indicate that you are a child of God or part of the kingdom. Again, what's Paul's question? Hath God cast away his people? He's referring to in totality. Does that mean he's completely done with them? No, so Paul has the first goal here of destroying the boasting of the Jews who are boasting in their merits by instead emphasizing God's faithfulness to his promises. See, God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his covenants. God is not going to suddenly cast away his people that he once foreknew. We'll learn this in just a moment. That is impossible for God to cast off those he foreknew. What Paul continues to indicate here is that the Jews might have answered Paul's question, hath God cast away his people? Those boasting Jews may have answered, well, no, he will not cast us off because we're his people. We're of the line of Abraham. And that would have been their argument. So they thought all we had to do is just be of the line of Abraham. So Paul's going to destroy that thought process. Here's how he does it. Look, look at the second part of the verse. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. He identifies himself just like we read in Romans 9. Those are my brethren. They're my kinsmen. I also am an Israelite. It's not coincidence that he indicates and uses the term the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was announcing here, I am a Jew of the Jews. A Pharisee of the Pharisees he once was. A Hebrew of the Hebrews he once was. He wants them to know very clearly that my ethnicity, my background, I come from the same line you do. I am also an Israelite. So Paul begins to chip away at the expected objection. But what the second part of verse 1 really indicates and starts to show us is secondly, that the rejection of the Jews, and this is what Paul's going to teach from here forward, was not a full and final rejection. So there is truth to the reality that some of the nation of Israel have been rejected. But it's not a full or a final rejection. Which means it is not accurate to say that God has rejected every Jew and he's rejected the nation of Israel. Or would it be fair to say that he has elected all of Israel? But Paul's question is, has he cast away his people? Is he done with Israel in totality? What was Paul's answer? God forbid. That's the strongest denouncing of any statement. So what Paul does is his, often his manner of writing is he starts from something smaller and builds up to something greater. Uses a smaller example, builds to a greater example. And the example he's building here is that if God had cast away his people, then above all, he would have cast me away. 
Now, it's from the smaller to the greater because Paul considered himself to be small. (laughs) Paul never considered himself, especially after his conversion, to be large in the sight of God. But had this been the case, if God is totally done with Israel, then he would have cast me off. That's why he said, I'm an Israelite. But has he cast me away? There was probably no greater opposer to Jesus Christ than the Apostle Paul for his conversion. We see opposition in our world. We see opposition in our country. And you think that's an opposition to God. Paul was probably the greatest opposer in all of human history to the things of Christ. Now, wouldn't he be a likely candidate to be cast away forever? If it was based upon that, wouldn't Paul have been the one that would have certainly been cast away? But yet he wasn't. So Paul, who had opposed God with all of his might, now sets out to prove that God does not reject his people. As a matter of fact, God even accepted into the beloved one who at one point in his life was utterly and completely lost. So Paul answers the question again, really, in the first part of verse 2. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Now there's where the difference becomes, what foreknowledge means. And we established last week that biblically foreknowledge is not God doing based upon what he knows what man will do, but the foreknowledge of God determining what he's going to do. This idea that God has asked permission for anyone to carry out his plans, that they have to accept it as their way, is not scriptural. Now, there are conditions that are given throughout Scripture. But those conditions were not conditions that led to their salvation. They were conditions that were given because of their calling. Now, God did not cast Paul away. So what was Paul kept by? He was kept by the gracious purpose of God's foreknowledge. Yes, his predestination and also his election. Even the most desperate of circumstances, the Jew of the Jews, the the opposer of the opposers, could not hinder God's plan of salvation. Which it's crazy talk to think that somebody can hinder God's plan of salvation. Now man can oppose it. I'm not telling you today that Satan does not oppose the salvation of souls. But Satan does not keep God's people from coming to Christ. He doesn't. His purposes are being carried out. His plan is being carried out. Satan is going to oppose everything he can do. Our our, our sermon this morning at 11.30 is the parable of the tares. And it's the greatest picture of Satan's opposition. Try not to give you too much of this sermon. We're going to learn about how the, the, the enemy plants in the field tares they are not tares that become wheat and they're not wheat that become tares they are tares they are not believers and they're planted into the kingdom to attempt to oppose 
God's plan and the kingdom of heaven. But there's nowhere scripturally that says that the tares keep people from being the wheat. The problem is the wheat and the tares are mixed together and you can't tell the difference just by looking at them. See, we can skip the 1130 now. That's the beauty of how God's word all ties together. These are not random thoughts that Paul was pulling and it's not random thoughts that Jesus was pulling when he's teaching the parables. It all goes back to what's God doing with his people, what's he doing with the Gentile and what's he doing with the nation of Israel. God's plan of salvation cannot be hindered or prevented. So Paul adds in verse 2, God has not cast away his people which he foreknew. Paul says that God is proving the case. I am a living example that he has not cast away me or anyone else who opposed Christianity like I did. See, the thing we don't want to admit about ourselves is that apart from God's grace, every one of you, including myself, are opposers of God. Without Christ, through the Spirit, opening our eyes, do not lead yourself to believe that one day you would choose Christ for yourself. It is only because He opened your eyes to see and made you willing to believe. Even Paul would never say, I came to myself and realized I was wrong and I chose Christ. No, no, no. He was completely apprehended by Christ. And the question Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the pricks? The Lord didn't say, Paul, do you want to be saved? Paul, do you want to pray? He was converted. In his hopeless state, on his way to kill Christians. And yet man wants to say, I am the captain of my own salvation. How arrogant is it to think that God would make you the captain of your own salvation, but he wouldn't make the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, the captain of his own salvation? It's pretty alarming, isn't it? But we just think, you're the captain, just choose. No. That's why we pray for God to open the eyes of his people. So Paul, again, starts from the lesser, goes to the greater. Again, remember, the Jews still have a very deep awareness of their identity. Paul laments the fact that Israel has missed the gospel. How did Israel try to seek salvation? Through the law. And again, he continues to use not only the law, but continues to use how the Bible says that God has not totally and finally rejected all of Israel. Paul clearly says, if that's the case, then he certainly has rejected me, and everything I say is a waste of time. Because I'm rejected. Paul traced his roots all the way back to his own brethren and his own kinsmen. Heading number three is the first part, is the second part of verse two. That the rejection of the people God foreknew is impossible. The rejection, the total rejection, we might say, of the people God foreknew is impossible. Now here he starts to give a greater example. Now this is what part of what we read in 1 Kings chapter number 19. 
He says, What ye not what the Scripture saith of Elias or Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. Paul now draws them to remember the story of Elijah. If you were to go and talk to most Jews today, they could tell you the stories of Elijah. If you were to talk to the people that were the national, national Israel in Paul's day and say, do you know about Elijah? Well, of course we know about Elijah. But Paul's digging deeper. He's digging deeper by saying, do you know really the lesson of Elijah? Do you know what that story is really all about? Is it the story of God saving, electing grace, or is it the story of a prophet that just was aggravating other prophets because they couldn't accomplish what they wanted to accomplish? It's the former. It's a beautiful picture of God's sovereign grace of how He reserved for Himself a remnant of people when Elijah said these words, I'm left alone. It's only me. And God says, you're not alone. There are 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Well, I've never seen election in that passage. It's all over the Bible. God says, I have reserved for myself. It doesn't say they reserve themselves for me. I reserve for myself a remnant. Remember I said last week, we're okay with God's, God electing Israel. We're not electing Israel. But then you start meddling with the Gentiles like you and I. and We, like, we don't want God meddling with whether or not we can be chosen or not. But Israel, it's okay. It's an amazing thing. You ask somebody they believe in election and they say, yeah, I believe in the doctrine of election for Israel, but that's where it stops. How do we get that? How do you get to that conclusion? Because it's always easier to say, whew, I'm glad I'm not dependent upon that electing thing. No, Paul is using this not just an example with what God is doing with Israel. Remember, he's starting with the smaller and going towards the greater. But if you'll notice here that this rejection of the people God foreknew is impossible, God's incapable of rejecting a people that he foreknew from the foundation of the world, the elect, who Paul writes about in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is all about the people God foreknew. That beautiful passage that's there about in, in verse 28 we know Romans 8 and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose you know there are people that use that verse so out of context they use that verse to a non-believer and they say you know I know you're going through rough times but God's doing it all for your good that's not what it says he says it's for the good to them that love God. That's a promise to the called. It's not just to those who love God, but to those who are called to love God. For whom, that's connected, He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. And here's Paul's style put right on the page for us. Here's his question. What shall we then say to these things? And he answers his own question with another question. Have you ever noticed this is another question, not a statement? If God be for us, who can be against us? 
Some of the greatest teachers always ask a question and they answer their question with another question. And then he proceeds to go on and says, if God spared not his own son, if God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. So if you think the elect only includes Israel, then we're all out. We're all non-elect. He's only talking about Israel then. No, Paul is not just talking about Israel. He's talking about all those who have been called according to his foreknowledge. Paul is driving home the point that those who God has chosen, God has foreknew, it is impossible for him to suddenly wake up one day and say, I now reject you because it would make God himself a liar. Remember what Paul said in Romans 9, 6. He wrote earlier, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Your ethnicity does not indicate that you are the called. Not all the seed of Abraham were chosen from the foundation of the world. Think about one example. What about Ishmael? Ishmael is of the seed of Abraham. But according to God's redemptive purposes, there's nowhere in Scripture you can point to me and say that Ishmael became part of God's redemptive purposes purpose yet he was part of God's plan Romans 9 7 in Isaac thy seed shall be called Paul does not want his readers to conclude that everything that he said about the Jews that their rejection of the Messiah and the despising of the gospel that God in any way shape or form has rejected the entire nation of Israel in its fullness and the reason, Paul says, I'm example number one. He hasn't rejected me. But then he goes again as what we read. Notice what the request of Elijah was. And this is an important key to this subject today. The request that Paul uses of Elijah was during a time of apostasy. Now, I'm going to define for you this morning what apostasy is because it's a misunderstood and completely twisted doctrine. Because apostasy is not paganism. And I told you to remember paganism, that God called them out of paganism. What is paganism? It's, it's really the worship of other gods. It's the worship of the false gods. An apostate is one who actually now denounces the God that he or she once believed in and has turned their back on them. An apostate is somebody who has typically been in the church. An apostate is not a person who's never claimed to know God. An atheist and an apostate are not the same. It's not synonymous. If you call an atheist an apostate, you're not understanding the terms right. An apostate, now, maybe that atheist at one time said, I believe in God and I've denounced my faith, maybe. But don't just equal them and say, well, all atheists are apostates. No, there are some atheists who have never claimed faith in God. They've never believed in God. So let me shed some light for us. There are probably millions of Jews who have never placed their faith and trust in God at all. There are Jewish atheists. There are Jewish apostates. There are Gentile atheists and there are Gentile apostates. People who once said, we believe in this God and we've now turned our back entirely on him. 
Elijah's cry was during a time of some of the greatest apostasy that Israel had ever seen. Part of what was going on, and that's why the request when Paul says, do you not know what the scripture says about Elias? How that he, that's Elijah, maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Remember, we read there, what was Elijah's statement? I am left alone, and they seek my life. Remember, Elijah had just been warned by Jezebel that I'm going to kill you. And Elijah sits down under that juniper tree, and he says, Lord, it's enough. Just take my life. Take it now. I can't go on any further. I love what R.C. Sproul calls it. He calls it the Elijah syndrome. It's a perfect way to describe it. It's only me. I'm the only one that hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. Even the Apostle Paul never thought about himself. I'm the only one standing for the Lord. But that syndrome that entered into Elijah's mind is the same type of syndrome that can enter into those even like you and I. But Paul argues against the Jews with another illustration. Because he's really kind of boxing them in. Because when he goes back to the experience of what happened with Elijah, remember, the Jews had arrogantly and boldly assumed they were God's people just because of their ethnicity. And that everyone else because they're not Jews, can't be his people. But you'll notice again what happens here. This cry from Elijah, again, during a time of apostasy. Elijah begs God. He pleads with God. Jezebel wants Elijah dead. There's also a little piece of information that if you read through 1 Kings, go all the way back and read, start in 1 Kings 16, there was an... Jezebel, that wicked wife, convinces Ahab to authorize idol worship in the high places of Israel. In other words, the places where their proper worship was supposed to take place, Jezebel persuades Ahab, hey, make those high places where they worship the true God places where now Baal is going to be worshipped. So what I, want you, what I want you to do, husband, is I want you to convince them to corrupt the high places of Israel's proper worship. So of course, as you, as you know, during that time and that movement in what's called paganism, the sacred altars of the Jewish people, they were torn down, they were burned, and shrines were established to the pagan god Baal. That's what's happening in that story. Elijah then issues this challenge to the prophets of Baal, and he says, if you have the real God, then why don't you use your power to call down fire from heaven? These altars were placed on Mount Carmel, and Elijah, knowing that they would not be able to perform what he was calling them to do, he begins to somewhat mock them. 
And he says, cry unto your, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, cry unto your God. And he says, maybe your God's on a journey. Maybe he's sleeping. Elijah goes from the pinnacle of calling down this, these prophets to finding himself, as Sproul says, suffering from the Elijah syndrome. Where suddenly now one threat But yet in the midst of all of Israel's turning back to paganism, remember I said that's what's key. God called them out of paganism to worship the one true God. Elijah wanted his life taken. It's oftentimes is what happens to us when we in this life think we're the only one standing for the truth. And I've said it a hundred times. We are not, nor will we ever be the only church standing for truth. And praise God for that. There are churches all over this world that are standing for truth. And we're thankful for every single one of them. They don't have to come here. They can actually live in the same town of Springfield and go to a good church. They don't have to come to ours to be right with God. But we do need to understand something. That in the age in which we live, where there seems to be apostasy running rampant where there seems to be people that are suddenly i don't want anything to do with god we're going to feel like we're the only people standing we're going to feel like we're the only ones and yet god says again look what he says in verse 4 i have reserved for myself seven thousand men it is god's grace and his electing grace that has wonderfully been magnified here because paul says it is he who reserved me for himself romans 9 16 not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth but of god that shows mercy you see god reserved a remnant for himself god kept seven thousand within that godless nation It wasn't them keeping themselves for God. It was God keeping them by His strong hand. Listen, folks, the only reason you and I are in the beloved and the only reason we don't turn our back on God now is because of God's grace. You think you're holding yourself in the faith. You're not. You think the perseverance of the saints is about you. It's about God's hold on you. When he asked the question, who shall separate us from the love of God? The answer is nobody because it's he that holds us. It doesn't say anything about just take Jesus' hand and hold on for the ride. No, it's his hold on you. He is not going to let go those he foreknew. That's Paul's point. That includes the nation of Israel, those that he foreknew, and that includes the Gentiles. Now that leads us to this conclusion today. And I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about the purpose and the point of Scripture. This is one of his simpler quotes. If you you read Martin Lloyd-Jones quotes, you realize he's usually a lot more deep than this. But I love what he says about the intent of Scripture. He said the intent of all Scripture is to bring bring us to a practical result. These passages are not meant to bring us to an argumentative state, but to bring us to a practical result of what God is doing. 
And that if God says, I'm not done with Israel, he's not done with Israel. If he says, I'm not done with the Gentiles, he's not done with the Gentiles. We've got to be very careful about not interjecting what we think God's purposes and plans are and coming to the supposition that that's what the Bible teaches. That's why we hold the authority of scriptures above everything else. And why I keep saying our authority is not the Baptist confession of faith. It's a wonderful reminder of what the Bible teaches, but that's not the final authority the Bible is. We believe that the confession upholds the scripture. And wherever the scripture and the confession disagree, what position do we take? The scriptural position. This is intended to bring us to a practical result. Next week, we're going to continue by beginning in verse number five. And we're going to look at probably the clearest statement that God makes throughout Scripture about how this all works. And it starts in verse five. It says, even so, then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And that really is the point that we'll drive home next week. All right, but let's go ahead and we'll stand and we'll conclude in prayer this morning. We've gone a little longer today. We would normally finish with a hymn.